Okay, welcome back to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you on the evening of April 19th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And we're going to be discussing a, um, a book tonight, an extremely provocative book that was published last year by uh, Routledge entitled The Responsibility to Protect in Libya and Syria, Mass Atrocities, Human Protection, and International Law by Yasmin Nalawi, a Syrian-American legal scholar now living in the UK. And, you know, I say it's a provocative book, despite the fact that it's actually, uh, for the most part, very dry, very dense, and uh, is in large part... um, composed of legalese. But nonetheless, what it's saying is definitely something that uh, challenges the uh, prevailing assumptions of uh, what, for lack of a better term, we will call the um, anti-imperialist left in the United States and Britain, whose views on the whole question of so-called humanitarian intervention are rooted almost entirely in the uh, critique put forth by Noam Chomsky. Initially, in his book of 1999, published after that year's uh, NATO bombardment of Yugoslavia in response to the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, The New Military Humanism, Lessons from Kosovo, in which he was basically arguing that, you know, the war was not carried out for uh, humanitarian purposes, but to, um, <clears throat> you know, advance uh, the interests of the United States and, and, and the Western powers and to um, accelerate the uh, dismantling of Yugoslavia for its own uh, political ends. Now, there's a genuine and very important insight here. I mean, there is a real critique here. Strictly speaking, I don't believe that there can be such a phenomenon as humanitarian intervention because. I don't believe that there is any government, any state on the planet, which when push comes to shove is motivated by humanitarian concerns. And any military intervention which is going to be taken is going to be, uh, you know, colored and shaped by geopolitical ends. Whatever propaganda is employed or whatever, you know, even self-delusion may be employed on the part of, you know, some of the more... uh, ideological advocates of humanitarian intervention, such as Samantha Power. So, I acknowledge that. There is something to the Chomskyan critique. And I will even say that, you know, it's a failure of this book that I am about to uh, discuss here, The Responsibilities of Protect in Libya and Syria by Yasmin Nalawi, that it doesn't grapple with this critique. It pretty much overlooks it. There isn't any index entry for Noam Chomsky in the book, and nothing to indicate that uh, that the author, Yasmin Lalawi, has read Chomsky's critiques of humanitarian intervention or, uh, you know, grappled with his ideas. Okay, that's a failure of this book. But nonetheless, this book says much that the what we may call the unthinking opponents of humanitarian intervention need to hear. And 
They are actually worse very often than merely unthinking, because the problem goes deeper than the arrogance of assuming that, yeah, the Western powers have interest other than the humanitarian, and that the conversation ends there, as if the carnage and even genocide that we've seen in Bosnia, Kosovo, Libya, Syria, etc., doesn't concern us. It actually goes beyond that. That would be a problematic enough position, but it goes beyond that because it extends to actual revisionism and denial that the carnage and genocide in Bosnia, Kosovo, Rwanda, Libya, Syria, even existed, or in the places where it's ongoing, such as Syria, exists. So, you know, there's a, um, a, 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 a denialism and a sort of a post-truth element, which is at work in a lot of, you know, the so-called, quote-unquote, anti-war propaganda going around out there on the interwebs. And sometimes it goes even beyond revisionism and denialism to actually reversing the victims and the oppressors in these situations. So just like I think that Yasmin Nalawi would have written a better book if she had read Chomsky and grappled with his ideas, similarly, I think that those, you know, the legions of Chomsky minions out there who are parroting his line need to listen to what people like Yasmin Nalawi have to say and grapple with that. Okay, she uh, expends a lot of pages looking at the so-called doctrine of R2P, Responsibility to Protect, which was developed by a body called the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty after the disasters in Bosnia and Rwanda, where it was perceived that the world's failure to respond had allowed genocide to be carried out and essentially abetted genocide. This R2P doctrine was officially endorsed by the United Nations General Assembly in 2005. It was perceived as the first significant challenge to what Nalawi calls the Eurocentric Westphalian model of state sovereignty. And it's certainly, uh, you know, kind of an historical irony that today all of these uh, propagandists out there who think that they are, you know, standing up to the West and the designs of Western imperialism are actually appealing to this model and upholding it as something which cannot be questioned. I'm going to quote from Nalawi's text. Although international law has come a long way, the traditional Eurocentric international legal system, also known as the Westphalian system, often attributed to the signing of the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, was primarily founded upon unquestioned and unquestioning state sovereignty. Under this traditional Westphalian model, a state sovereignty maintained it as the sole and supreme authority within its territorial boundaries. This meant that, in theory, it retained exclusive control over all matters within its jurisdiction and that its policies could not be questioned or interfered with by any other power. 
As such, a state was not required to observe human rights practices within its domestic sphere unless it specifically assumed such obligations upon itself. It could treat its subjects as it wished. It could theoretically persecute a group, repress its people, or wage war to defend its territorial integrity, for example, against secessionist ambitions, while claiming these to be sovereign acts. The only situation in which it forfeited this claim to internal sovereignty was if it violated the rights of another state. And this began to erode after World War II with treaties such as the 1948 Genocide Convention, the 1966 International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the 1984 Convention Against Torture, etc. R2P consists of three pillars. The first, Pillar 1, calls upon states to protect their populations from genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. Pillar 2 calls for the provision of support to states to enable them to uphold their Pillar 1 responsibilities. And finally, Pillar 3 confers, quote, the responsibility of member states to respond collectively in a timely and decisive manner when a state is manifestly failing to protect its population from mass atrocity crimes. And she first discusses the application of R2P to the Libya case and begins by providing some uh, you know, historical background of what happened just over 10 years ago in Libya, which is just clean forgotten today by all the Chomsky heads out there who see the deposition of Muammar Gaddafi as the problem and think that if it hadn't been, or seem to think that if it hadn't been for the Western intervention, Gaddafi would have crushed the rebellion and, uh, you know, there would have, we would have gone back to, you know, the benevolent secular dictatorship, you know, and, and stability under Muammar Gaddafi, and uh, everybody in Libya would be living happily ever after today. <clears throat> A little corrective perspective from Yasmin Dalawi. Anti-government protests erupted in Libya on 15 February 2011 against the backdrop of over 40 years of repressive rule by the Gaddafi regime. The regime responded to these protests with force, making it clear that it intended to wipe out any dissent. Most famously, then-Libyan President Gaddafi declared on Libyan national television on 22 February that he would lead millions to purge Libya inch by inch, house by house, alley by alley, to purify the land, quote-unquote, from protesters or rats, quote-unquote, who needed to be executed. This statement, in addition to similar ones articulated by himself and his son, drew stark comparison with the incitement to genocide in Rwanda, in 1994, through the labeling of ethnic Tutsis as Inyenzi, or cockroaches, and sure enough was followed by the Commission of Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Against the Civilian Population. Specifically, the International Commission of Inquiry on Libya, established by the UN Human Rights Council, concluded that the Libyan regime throughout the uprising committed crimes against humanity of murder torture, persecution, enforced disappearance, 
and imprisonment and other severe deprivations of physical liberty, as well as the war crimes of murder, outrages upon personal dignity, and intentionally directing attacks against protected persons and targets. These violations made the R2P doctrine directly relevant to the situation in Libya. Then she goes on to discuss how the uh, the NATO bombing campaign in support of the Libyan rebels, which was approved by the United Nations Security Council under Resolution 1973, did indeed morph into a regime change mission. And she openly defends this. Now, you can disagree with her argument, but you would do well to grapple with it, to hear it, and to think about it. Okay, discussing how the, 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 the mission morphed into regime change, she writes, <clears throat> The next step in evaluating the lawfulness of regime change in Libya is to determine whether and how it can be reconciled with the object and purpose of UN Security Council Resolution 1973, namely that of civilian protection. Critics point to the subsequent deterioration of the situation in Libya following NATO's termination of its military campaign in October 2011 to contend that regime change not only failed to protect civilians, but was furthermore detrimental to the attainment of this objective. Specifically, Libya descended into civil war post-October 2011. Chaos and violence have overtaken the country, including through the continued commission of mass atrocity crimes by various armed factions, and through an ongoing struggle for power between multiple political bodies. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that as of 2019, there are more than 200,000 internally displaced persons in Libya, and that a further 1.3 million people in the country are in need of humanitarian assistance. These figures invite skepticism regarding whether NATO's pursuit of regime change was aligned with the object and purpose of Security Council Resolution 1973 of civilian protection. A closer examination of NATO's military intervention in Libya, however, challenges the narrative of these critics. James Pattison, in his work Perilous Non-Interventions, for example, discusses, quote, the counterfactual of non-intervention, end quote, and maintains that the situation in Libya could have been much worse without NATO's military campaign. Harold Coe, in The War Powers and Humanitarian Intervention, furthermore contends that had NATO forces stopped short of regime change, it is likely that Gaddafi's forces would have recuperated and resumed their massacre of civilians, particularly given the clear intent demonstrated by Gaddafi to impose his dominance using brute force. Such a scenario can be likened to that of Syria, discussed in the next chapter, a similar mass atrocity situation that emerged in 2011 out of a violent government response to pro-democratic protests. The international community decided not to intervene militarily against Syria's Assad regime. And the result has been a brutal and ongoing conflict 
of which scale has far exceeded that of Libya. For example, in terms of civilian casualties, refugees, destroyed infrastructure, and more. Similarly, it is not inconceivable, by which of course she means that it is conceivable, that any scenario that involved Gaddafi staying in power would have led to a bloody outcome far worse than what Libya currently faces, which would run counter to the object and purpose of UN Security Council Resolution 1973. Now, of course, any uh, you know speculation about what would have happened if history had gone differently is to a certain extent empty speculation. I mean, it's inherently unknowable what would have happened if things had been other than what they actually were. And yeah, Yasmin Nalawi is engaging in that in the passage that I just read, but so too are the so-called anti-imperialists who appear to believe that if NATO had not intervened, Gaddafi would have recouped his losses and rebuilt a stable dictatorship and everything would be okay in Libya today. That strikes me as a considerably less likely outcome than the one described by Nalawi. And in fact, I hear over and over and over again from opponents of intervention against the Assad regime in Syria that, uh, you know, if um, Assad is destabilized, then Syria would look like Libya, which is such a maddeningly reality-denying thing to say. Libya, where there was regime change, is in a better situation than Syria today. And you can spare me the litany of horrors in Libya, because I know all about them. But it is Syria which has experienced the exponentially greater litany of horrors, and which is today the world's biggest humanitarian disaster. Syria, not Libya. It isn't even close. And I could even point to certain clear gains in the status of uh, women and ethnic minorities in Libya since the regime change, or as I prefer to call it, the revolution of 10 years ago. But that's a separate rant. Save that for some other time. The point is, is that the situation in Libya, where there was a regime change war, quote unquote, is not nearly as bad as the situation in Syria, where there has not been and is not any regime change war, about which more later. And the other thing I don't want to be lectured about is the motives of Western powers, because I was, you know, arguing at the time and continue to maintain today that the primary motive of the Western powers and their intervention in Libya was a political one, and it was to bring about a sort of thermidor in the Arab Revolution and establish at least one country in the Arab world where dictatorships were falling like dominoes at that time, where the revolutionary leadership would come to power beholden to the West, and that a kind of, you know, a technocratic leadership could be groomed which would not, for instance, <clears throat> pursue any uh, you know, socialistic ideas or attempt to uh, exert nationalistic control over resources such as oil. And even if this was not the conscious motive of the Obama administration, which I think it probably was, <laughs> from a, a perspective of uh, you know, um, political economy, I think a case can be made that it was ultimately what was driving the intervention. 
But once again, that's not the end of the conversation. And even if you take a purist position that Western military intervention can never be supported anywhere under any circumstances, that isn't the ticket to start engaging in intellectual distortions of the kind which have just been discussed here. Now we turn to Syria. And it was precisely because the, the military intervention which was approved by the United Nations Security Council in Libya morphed into a regime change mission that uh, the, the Security Council did not approve any such resolutions for Syria. And Malawi provides a, an, a whole list of the Security Council resolutions calling for protection of civilians in Syria, which were blocked, which were vetoed by Russia and China. And again, I quote from the text, <clears throat> Throughout the Syrian R2P situation, civilian populated areas that opposed the Assad regime's rule politically and or militarily, were subjected by the regime and its allies to relentless aerial bombardments, starvation sieges, chemical attacks, and the targeting of infrastructure, including hospitals, bakeries, and power and water sources, with the view to bringing such areas back under regime control. This included systematic, indiscriminate, and unrestrained military offensives against Daraya, Eastern Gouda, Homs, Madaya, Zabadani, Eastern Aleppo, Idlib, and more, and by default entailed the commission of numerous mass atrocity crimes on behalf of the regime. Mass atrocity crimes were also committed by other sides of the conflict, including by terrorist groups such as ISIS and Al Nusra Front, as well as by opposition and Kurdish groups. Those committed by ISIS and al-Nusra Front were met with concerted international action in the form of a U.S.-led military intervention, which commenced in September 2014. While no similar action has been forthcoming to address the atrocities committed by the regime or other groups, this is despite the fact that the carnage inflicted by the Assad regime in particular, has affected a much wider segment of the civilian population, has been more sustained, and has been more responsible for significantly higher death tolls, forcible displacement of the civilian population, and destruction of infrastructure as compared to any other actor involved within the conflict. The last passage I'm going to read from the responsibility to protect in Libya and Syria, Mass Atrocities, Human Protection, and International Law by Yasmin Dalawi, published last year by Routledge. Under their imprint, Routledge Research in International Law. And that passage in particular cuts through the nonsense that there is any quote-unquote regime change war in Syria, which there is not. Okay, there have been only three significant occasions, apart from a couple of skirmishes out in the desert, there have only been three significant occasions in which uh, U.S. forces have targeted the Assad regime. After the Khan Shikun chemical attack in April 2017, after the Ghouta chemical attack in April 2018, and just recently back uh, this February, when Biden bombed uh, an Iranian militia base in eastern Syria, in retaliation for an attack on a U.S. base in uh, 
in Iraq by Iranian-backed militias. Didn't even really have anything to do with Syria at all, except that it happened to happen in Syrian territory. <laughs> Concerned events outside Syria, but was an attack on forces allied with the Assad regime. Okay, so uh, three instances with hardly any civilian casualties in any of these three instances, possibly none. And meanwhile, the U.S. bombed the city of Raqqa, which was held by ISIS, day after day after week after week for months, virtually destroying the entire city. A bombing campaign which was explicitly supported by the Assad regime. I'm reading from Reuters, September 2014. Syrian minister says U.S.-led strikes going in, quote, right direction, unquote. A Syrian government minister said U.S.-led airstrikes against militants, meaning ISIS, are going in the right direction, quote-unquote. Because the government had been informed, meaning the Assad regime, had been informed before they started, and they were not hitting civilians or military targets. Well, the notion that they weren't hitting civilians is laughable. You can check the Amnesty International reports. There were at least hundreds, probably thousands, of civilian casualties in the U.S. bombardment of Raqqa. But to continue to the text of the Reuters account from September 2014, Syria is still watching all developments with caution, Ali Haidar, Minister for National Reconciliation, told Reuters after U.S. warplanes pounded Islamic State positions in a second day of attacks. See, right away, I have to take issue with, uh, you know, this is this very verbiage is echoing regime propaganda. For starters, referring to the Assad regime as Syria is problematic. Syria is a country. And the notion that, uh, you know, this Ali Haidar is the Minister for National Reconciliation is Orwellian on its face. <clears throat> he is quoted as saying, quote, as for the raids in Syria, I say that what has happened so far is proceeding in the right direction in terms of informing the Syrian government and by not targeting Syrian military installations and not targeting civilians, end quote. Notification of the Syrian government has happened, he said. Confirmation they would not target Syrian military installations has happened, end quote. The U.S. bombardment of Raqqa, which virtually destroyed the city and went on for months, was explicitly coordinated with and met with the approval of the Assad regime. Does this sound to you like a war of regime change? And uh, unfortunately, the last thing I'm going to do, even if I'm, you know, burning bridges here, well, why not? I really don't have this bridge left to burn at this point, <clears throat> is I tried to... Um, Place a review of this book, The Responsibility to Protect in Libya and Syria, by Yasmin Lalawi, in The Nation. Because it is readers of The Nation who are precisely the ones who need to grapple with what is said in this book. The Nation has serially, over the past 10 years, run, and I'm not going to mince any words here, lying propaganda on behalf of the Assad regime. Now, I used to be a um, occasional contributor to the nation. I believe the last piece I did for them was in um, December 2007, significantly before 
the Arab Revolution, and more specifically the Syrian Revolution, broke out, and they really took a political nosedive. And I have, uh, you know, determined since then, in recent years, that I would not appear in the nation unless it was quite specifically to call them out on this propaganda. And in any event, they don't seem to be in any hurry to work with me. I approached their literary editor, David Marcus. I sent him numerous emails, pitching him on a review of Yasmin Malawi's book. He didn't respond to any of them. And again, I'm not some newbie, okay? Over the years, like say from uh, the late 80s through uh, 2007, I probably had 10 articles or so in the nation, including book reviews, mostly back in the 90s when uh, the book review section was edited by uh, John and Sue Leonard, who were great editors. And boy, do I ever miss them. They were a pleasure to work with. Very, very sharp editors. John died a few years ago. I hope that Sue is still around. And a shout out to you if you're listening tonight, Sue Leonard. But uh, David Marcus could not even be uh, bothered to respond to my emails, possibly because he knows that my review would have called out the nation. For instance, after the 2017 chemical attack on Kanchi Kun, the nation ran a piece by James Cardin entitled The Chemical Weapons Attack in Syria. Is there a place for skepticism? The American media have excluded dissenting expert opinions in their rush to embrace Trump's war on Syria. Now, there are so many things wrong just with this, uh, this headline that you don't even know where to begin. The dissenting expert opinions, which are cited here, have been amply deconstructed and dismissed by journalists and human rights organizations contradict the findings of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, and make no political sense whatsoever. I mean, this, you know, conspiracy theory, every time the Assad regime carries out a chemical attack, it's trotted out. That it was really, you know, a false flag by the rebels themselves to try to gain sympathy. I mean, it's the equivalent of, you know, back in the 1960s saying after, uh, you know, a napalm attack, or the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, that it was really carried out by the Viet Cong in some kind of, you know, conspiracy to gain sympathy from world opinion. It's abhorrent on its face that we're seeing this kind of nonsense in the pages of the nation. And once again, Trump's war on Syria, quote unquote. So one set of airstrikes after the 2017 chemical attack on Khan Shikun in which there were no civilian casualties, is called, quote-unquote, Trump's war on Syria. As if the U.S. hadn't already been bombing Syria with the cooperation and approval of the Assad regime for three years already at that point. Absolutely disgraceful. Even worse, in August of um, 2016, the nation's Stephen F. Cohen, now the late Stephen F. Cohen, he died a few months ago, was featured in a, um, an online audio interview with the introductory text reading on the nation website, quote, Putin needs a decision by Obama now as the crucial battle of Aleppo intensifies. Under his own pressure at home, Putin seems resolved to end the Islamic State's occupation of Syria. 
Aleppo being a strategic site with or without U.S. cooperation, which he would prefer to have, end quote. This is an utter distortion. This was happening at the time, back in uh, 2016, when Putin's warplanes were, you know, on behalf of the Assad regime, bombing the city of Aleppo into oblivion. Not because it was held by ISIS, but because it was held by Syrian rebels under the loose affiliation of the Free Syrian Army, who were themselves fighting ISIS. There was no ISIS presence in Aleppo at that time. Because when ISIS had attempted to establish a presence in Aleppo, they had been driven out of the city by the Syrian rebels who Putin was bombing. This is a complete reversal of reality. This is lying propaganda, straight up. This is conflating forces that were fighting ISIS with ISIS. This is the most sinister war propaganda and justification of the bombardment of civilian populations imaginable. And it was appearing in a quote-unquote left-wing publication appealing to a quote-unquote anti-war audience beyond Orwellian. And this is precisely why readers of the nation needed to be aware of what he said in the book, The Responsibility to Protect in Libya and Syria, Mass Atrocities, Human Protection, and International Law by Yasmin Malawi. Routledge 2020. But I guess they aren't going to be. And it's just going to be those few who listen to my podcast. And what's really maddening about it is that once again, it is the voices of Syrians and Syrian Americans that are being overlooked. And that all of these nation readers who see themselves as anti-racist and hip and enlightened are going to continue to get their analysis on Syria from people with names like James Carden and not Yasmin Malawi. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online, where everything I have to say here is hyperlinked and documented at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon, join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.